This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. I'm Oyntrila Mukherjee, and I'm the author of the debut novel, The Dream Builders. Told through a chorus of voices, Oyndrila Mukherjee's debut novel, The Dream Builders, explores the cultural impact the United States has had on India, past and present. Colonization and globalization touch the lives of each of the characters, who experience vastly different class and gender divisions. I recently spoke with Oyndrila Mukherjee about how she observed American culture in India, her connections with her cast of characters, and more. I'm Beth Golay. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. So can you give our listeners a brief introduction to your novel? Absolutely. It's interesting how I am much more comfortable with the idea of writing a very long novel than coming up with a short pitch. But uh, The Dream Builders is set in a fictional city in India called Rishipur, over the course of a single summer, the summer of 2018, in fact. And it is a story told from the perspective of 10 different characters from very different backgrounds. The first one that we meet is Manika Roy, who is a creative writing professor in the US in a Midwestern college town. And she's going back to India after six years following her mother's death. And she finds herself in this new city called Rishipur, which is unlike anything she's known before. It's a startling contrast both to her hometown where she grew up, Calcutta, and also to Heathersfield, the town that she lives in in the Midwest, also a fictional city. And then through her, we meet all the other characters, and they're from very different socioeconomic backgrounds, but they're all basically trying to survive in this rapidly changing city and world. So as you mentioned, one of the first storylines we're introduced to in the book, it has to do with Manika's parents. They had put all of their money toward a flat that was never built and the money was never returned. So shortly after, the city is abuzz with the construction of Trump Towers, and the towers are named after rivers on the seven continents. And as I said, this was just one of the storylines that we're introduced to, but it, it kind of wove throughout the book. What made you want to explore this theme or storyline about flats being built? You know, it's uh, this is kind of the most important part of the book, I think. Well, first of all, I just want to say that there is a tiny autobiographical element here because my parents actually invested in not one, but two condos, one after the other, after one didn't work out another one, and neither of them was built. And the second one is really by one of the most famous builders in India, and he, they, their family is in jail right now. Um, but it's been years. So this was something that happened that I was just sort of thinking about. And, you know, I was when I visited, I would go with my dad to the courthouse, and I would talk to the real estate developers. And I should probably add that after I moved to the US 20 years ago, my parents relocated from our hometown of Calcutta and moved to this city near Delhi, which is kind of a real life inspiration for Rishipur called Gurgaon. And it's a very upwardly mobile city. It's famous for its real estate developments. It has more than 40 malls. It has many corporate offices. Of course, I sort of exaggerated, embellished and fictionalized, you know, just a lot. But there was some kernel of truth there. And I uh, noticed that a lot of the constructions, there's there's a lot of 
real estate development. There's a lot of swank, you know, malls and hotels and everything rises up. You know, it's like vertical buildings, skyscrapers. But if you go a little bit outside the city, there's still a lot of farmland and villages and, you know, rural India. So that contrast and paradox, which is really all of India in a way, not just Rishipur, was really fascinating to me. And I started talking to people involved in this sort of construction business, you know, partly venting and asking them, when is our property going to be? And they were like, think about the poor people, you know, think about the person who was going to sell the granite countertops for the kitchens and the person who was going to do the appliances, you know, a lot of people lose money when this happens. And it was happening to a lot of people. A lot of my friends invested in flats that were very delayed or not even coming to fruition. And, you know, the economy in India at the time, pre-pandemic, you know, there's been a lot of growth. There's a lot of prosperity and material aspiration, but it's kind of on the surface, you know, because what happens when someone loses their job suddenly? They were earning a lot, but now they don't have a job and they have to pay both their rent and also they have to pay the EMI that they were paying for the flat that hasn't been built. And so I was hearing these stories and I got more and more interested And then one day I was actually, I'm telling this story a lot this week, but I was traveling from Gurgaon to Delhi and I saw a sign. I actually have a photograph of the sign. I saw a sign on the wall that said, Trump has arrived, have you? With a question mark on top of it. And the question was just, it really, I'd already started writing a novel set in this city with some of the themes and characters, but Trump Towers had not made an appearance in it. The lost property was something that was there for Manika and her parents, but Trump Towers did not have an appearance until this moment. And then it started really crystallizing because I found this slogan (laughs) to be really fascinating for so many reasons. First of all, this was 2018. So we had a different president in the U.S. and the U.S. influence all over the world. It may even be different from what people expect. Sometimes it's just the brand, you know, sometimes it's just, oh, the American labels or the retail chains, you know, people are not necessarily even thinking about the political implications, just as anywhere, but especially in a different country. And I was really fascinated by, of course, the name being used to sell something like who would, you know, be so excited about buying a product based on this name, which really stands for American capitalism and economy. But also I was really interested in the word arrived when it says has arrived, have you? Because what does it mean to arrive? You know, for many of the characters in Rishipur, is it wealth? Is it status? Is it physical arrival? Because nobody there is from Rishipur. They've all arrived from somewhere else. You know, Manika is an immigrant. It's an immigrant story. And so I just thought, Wow, that's so fascinating. And I think that's a very long-winded answer to your question. But it took me several years to figure out the plot, you know, so it takes a little while to explain it, too. Well, I like the way you're talking about what happens when these flats aren't being built and what happens to all of the people down the line and, and bringing focus onto that. Because, you know, you looked at how the people of India are being impacted by globalization, but then there also seemed to be some like retrospective comments about British colonization throughout the book. 
Can you talk to me a little bit about that and, and what you might want readers who might not be familiar with either of these, what you might want them to know about both of these issues? Sure. And again, I'll just go back to my own story. You know, I, I grew up in a post-colonial India. I mean, it'll always be post-colonial, but it was much more immediate then. And, you know, when I was a child, all the storybooks I read, most of them were by British authors. The American cultural influence was lesser. And of course, India is, you know, a former British colony and relatively new as an independent nation state just became independent from the British in 1947. So when I was growing up, you know, it was still it was still very much a part of that. But in the early 90s, when I was in high school, a really big change happened. Because in 1991-92, the economy of India was opened up to foreign markets and foreign investors. And once that happened, there was an influx of American brands and labels. And I remember cable TV, for instance, you know, came in in the early 90s and suddenly we were watching The Bold and the Beautiful and Santa Barbara at prime time every night on weeknights. Our cultural landscape in urban India, urban middle class, upper middle class India really shifted, you know. Maybe the really wealthy people, it didn't shift so much for them because they were traveling back and forth anyway. But for the rest of us, it was just a real big shift. There was suddenly MTV and, you know, all those cultural influences. And I think that for now we live in this era of globalization where, you know, the former British colony, the, the colonial influences, it's still there. The fact that I'm speaking to you in English and writing in English, of course, it's still there. But the immediate influence of America really looms large because of Hollywood, because of social media, because of, you know, TV. And I have been always fascinated by that shift of the early 90s, because it shaped my life so much. You know, I even went to England to study for a couple of years. And I realized I didn't recognize any of the music because I had been listening to Madonna and Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston, you know, when I was a kid. So it's just really interesting how those shifts happen. And you notice that I'm not really talking very much yet about Indian culture, right? Because what gets lost in the process for many of us English-speaking, English-educated young people is that we went from English to American culture. And it's really easy to forget that you have this rich, ancient, you know, multi-textured history of your own to think about. Many of your characters had to rely on side hustles or unsavory exchanges to get by. And one of your characters, one of the few that didn't seem to have a side hustle, had a little rant. I think it was in the airport, if I recall correctly, and, and spoke about class divisions and, quote, how they would destroy us. Can you talk to me about these class divisions? Yeah, this is not an ethnographic study. You know, I'm not a historian, I'm not an economist, and I'm not a social scientist. So I certainly don't want to claim to in any way understand or represent, be able to represent all of India. And an, and an economist would be able to explain this much better. Whatever I say and whatever I've written is based on my own experiences and insights and perceptions. And I'm just trying to tell a story and it doesn't include every aspect. So I just want to make that really clear because I don't want to claim to you know know everything about the country. And it's changed. I've lived in the US for 20 years. So I feel like I experience a lot of India because I go and spend a lot of time there. But again, living there, the ground reality might be quite different. 
I do, however, feel really strongly about this, that even the city of Rishipur, which is based on a real city, can highlight for you the differences. You know, like, as I said, if you just go a little bit outside of the city, and even in the city itself, you have, on the surface, everybody's life is really privileged, and everybody looks very glamorous and well off when we first meet them. But it's the invisible people, the chauffeurs and the maids and the facialists and the cleaners who are keeping the city functioning and going. And their lives are really intersected, you know, in terms of, you know, there's been a populist movement, not only in India, but across the world in the last few years, where we've had populist, you know, governments and votes and elections. And I think that is what this character is talking about. So Salil is one of those characters who, you know, there are people like Ramona who are like old money, used to have grown up with wealth and privilege and a little snobby. There are people who obviously don't have any and will never have any. There are people who had some but have lost it maybe, you know. And then there are people who are maybe not so much in the book, but even in this city, Gurgaon, that I was talking about, a lot of buyouts have happened. A lot of people, their farmlands were, you know, developed or redeveloped to become these high-rise communities and the people came into money that way because they were bought out. So there is a lot of new money as well. And then, of course, there was this whole startup culture, you know, especially before the pandemic, the entrepreneurship of people like Salil, who now is his own wannabe Gatsby <laughs> you know, liquor baron. And so where do they belong? There are people who may have grown up in small towns and have now come to these big metropolitan centers. They were not really poor, but they were also not very rich. And now they suddenly have a lot more money and access to wealth. And it's just, it can be really complicated. And I mean, that moment is interesting because, you know, I don't want to spoil it too much by saying what happens, but you think that characters are a certain way and then you realize they're not, you know, and somebody even asks him, whose side are you on? And he's not sure. Or maybe he realizes for the first time whose side he really is on, you know, because it's so complicated. And I don't think people can be pinned down necessarily to, you know, either in class or in values, you know, or in lifestyle and nor can places, you know, it's all really complex. I don't know if I answered your question. I just rambled on. Yeah, no, and it's actually interesting because something you just mentioned, you know, as we discussed earlier, the, the story is told through a chorus of characters. And, you know, the reader is able to see, you know, like we first, very first chapter, we, we meet Monica. But then the very next chapter, it's a different perspective. So we see Monica through a different lens. And, you know, I'm wondering, as a writer, you get to know your characters, but as you shifted perspectives... Did anything about the characters you thought you knew surprise you? Yeah, you know, I went through so many drafts. And I have to say that some character, I mean, for instance, even Pinky is character. Like I actually published that chapter as a standalone story for Ecoton magazine a couple of years ago. And it did not end the way it does. It was a standalone chapter. And it was only towards the end that I thought, oh, this needs to happen, you know, and this would impact because what what can happen in a book like this is they can easily become linked stories where you could just read one and be satisfied or read them out of order. But I really wanted it to be a novel. I wanted it to be a novel where every chapter has to be read in sequence and you cannot just read one because you won't get much out of it. It's like, yeah, this was interesting, but now I have to know what happens next, you know? And so the endings are kind of like cliffhangerish, 
And, you know, their lives have to intersect a lot more than they were intersecting in the beginning. And that was the biggest surprise for me is that, wait a minute, what this person says is going to impact that what that person does, you know, 50 pages later. And I think those intersections, which may be more a plot thing than a character thing, was very important. Salil really surprised me because when I first started writing, I really hated him. I was like, (laughs) this is a person I would never really talk to. He is so obnoxious. And I think by the end of the book, I would say that as as a writer in an artistic sense, that was probably, I feel like the most proud of what I was able to do with him because I felt for him, you know, I really felt he was complex and that was very hard to do. It's easier to make, you know, someone like Chaya, um, sympathetic than Salil. So yeah, he surprised me in, or maybe I surprised myself <laughs> that you know, I was able to put those layers in there. A lot of things like Ashok's you know, story, which I don't want to go into the stories because people find out, but mm-hmm. they happened. I don't know. One day suddenly I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is what you know has happened to this person. And I just think the way it all comes together is the most surprising. Yeah. So you mentioned at the beginning that this is semi, it's autobiographical in a sense that your your parents had, had lost flats that were supposed to be built twice. But, you know, when we meet Monica, she's a 35-year-old who was born in India and now is working as a, as a creative writing professor in the United States, which, you know, kind of mirrors your life a little bit. But when she was writing a book of essays during her three months in India, she kept changing her mind on the topic of the essays. So was that similar when you were writing The Dream Builders? Did it shift as you were writing it or did you always know what you were going to write? I, I feel like I want to address two questions, even though you asked me one. Perfect. <laughs> um, I, I just want to say that it's not an autobiographical novel. Of course, there are a few little plot points that I stole from here and there. Especially, I can say I stole a few things from my parents' lives. And I can say this because they know and they don't mind. But it's not autobiographical. And I intentionally made Manika very different from me. I know her perspective is the same, you know, but... First of all, she teaches nonfiction, so it cannot oh. be me. <laughs> I didn't pay no, attention I... that closely. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I intentionally, she looks very different in my mind. And she actually has a very different personality. And what she wants out of life and what she says she wants in the first chapter are things I totally had to make up just to make her more interesting. Because when she was, I mean, the first draft, she was more me because she was nothing. You know, she was just an observer and narrator. She didn't really have her own shape. And it was so insipid. You know, I said, I need a character here. It can't just be like a narrator, you know. So I totally had to create her and make her up. I actually didn't, um, I wasn't as wishy-washy as her because it's interesting because she's so opinionated and judgmental. Uh, Hopefully, I mean, I'm not like that, but she is also so indecisive, you know, at the same time, which is really interesting. Um, I think with nonfiction writing about India, this was also an intentional thing. Like if you're trying to write a book of essays about India, you know, you're not a scholar, you're a writer. It's really hard. What are you going to write about without sounding you know, pretentious without sounding. She wants to be authentic. She wants to do research. She is aware of the fact that she's a diaspora writer, that people are going to say, you don't live here. They do say that to her. You know, what do you know about India? And so she's, it's her insecurities that are coming through, you know, and the fact that India is so complex and so big, how is she going to pin it down to one thing? Uh, What could her book possibly be about that she would actually 
know enough about that would capture everything. I think she's really trying to grapple with the idea of how to articulate this big country, you know, and as a writer, I think all of us who live in the West have to do that. Uh, we have to grapple with the fact, you know, of uh, the questions of authenticity and representation. You know, it was probably less of an issue for me because I'm writing fiction, fictional cities, made up stories, made up characters, you know, really a work of the imagination. When you say it's nonfiction, people immediately, readers are going to assume that you know what you're talking about. And this is a book that is going to inform them about the country, right? And that's a huge burden. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the fictional city. Remind me again how it's pronounced Rishipur. Talk to me about the H at the beginning of it, because you explained it in the book, but and I, I found it fascinating, and I think our listeners might as well. Okay, so I initially had a city called, this is going to be a very mundane explanation. <laughs> I had a city called Rishipur. Rishi means sage or holy man in Hindi. And, you know, it was kind of a take on Gurgaon because Gur also, Guru is the same, you know, it means teacher. And so it was, it's, uh, I have to call it something. And I had this whole legend around it and all that, but I spelled it with an R. And then I learned that there was a real Rishipur somewhere oh. <laughs> in a small town. So I had to change it. And I want, I was, I thought, well, should I change the whole name? But then, you know, there's a conversation where Ashok explains this to Manika, the Indian uh, Bollywood actor, Rithik Roshan, very famous guy. His name starts with an H, not an R. And it was, I think it was an astrological decision. A lot of actors, a lot of people do that. They consult or their parents consult the astrologer and then they pick, you know, they add and add a letter for auspicious reasons because it's supposed to bring good luck. And so I thought, well, there you go. Rishipur actually with an H would be a really nice contrast to Heathersfield. Both of them start with an H. And I think it sounds more romantic anyway, that way. It sounds even more mythical <laughs> and you know, not as boring as the other spelling. And it allowed me to give Ashok and Manika a chance to have a conversation about it. A word I keep coming back to when I think about this novel is consequences. Is there a word that you think of? That's just an amazing question. I, I have to think of a word. Complicated is one, for sure places and people. I also think expectations. You know, I mean, everybody has expectations. Even the person who comes to America has expectations of the place that they're coming to. People have expectations of each other, of marriage, of their jobs. You know, it's interesting because your word goes to the end results and mine is sort of at the beginning, you know, but how expectations are subverted, belonging and alienation, for sure, you know, no one seems to belong in, in Rishipur, right? But I think if I had, yeah, I think I would have to go with something like aspirations or expectations because the whole city is a city of aspiration, you know? It's built on the idea of what people hope for and think they're going to get, and then they might get something completely different, or they might realize that they actually were wanting the wrong thing, if that makes sense. It does. Oindrila Mukherjee, the book is The Dream Builders. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really lovely. That was Oindrila Mukherjee, author of the book The Dream Builders, which was published by Tin House. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. 
Our engineers are Mark Stasser and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevenson, Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.